Welcome to the Retreat House Podcast. I'm your host, Angie Smith. I've invited a friend to the table to share their story. Come and join us. Welcome to the table. I don't think I've been very clear about what the series is called that I've been in, but what I've been calling it is, how do you do it? When you look at people doing something and you think, how do they do that? So today will be a continuation of answering that question, how do you do it with writing? How do you write? Which is a very broad subject. So I'm very interested to see where this conversation takes us. Uh, Today, I am welcoming back a guest who was here with us back last Advent and is back again. And I am so excited to have her here talking about writing because she has been helpful to me as I've tried to venture into writing. And so I I think this is going to be a really great, encouraging, and hopefully insightful conversation. So I am so glad to welcome back to the podcast, Judith Haugen. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So yeah, it is a very, very broad subject to talk about writing. And I, the reason why, well, the reason why I wanted to ask you is because I had gone to your writing retreat a couple of summers ago, and the, the my my biggest memory from that in view of the writing is that you took me seriously as a writer, mm-hmm. which was encouraging, and and the safe space that you created to to just try, right. Mm-hmm. So will you t- talk a little bit about your approach on the writing retreat, and then maybe we'll get to your personal approach to writing after that. Sure. When I lead a writing retreat, and a lot of this is true when I'm teaching creative writing as well at University of Northwestern. Sorry, we didn't say that. Yeah, we didn't. You're, but... <laughs> yeah. you're a professor of creative writing. Or no, you're... What I'm a professor title? of English and literature, and I'm a creative writing specialist at the University of Northwestern, and uh, just had my 25th anniversary oh. as a teacher at the school. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah, it's a big milestone, so it's like a real career or something. Yeah, that is very significant. It's been mm-hmm. 20 years since I graduated. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> well, so my approach to writing is at a retreat in that kind of setting is a little bit similar to what I would be doing in class which is you kind of start where people are. And you. I think that to, to write well and is to also be inspired. Mm. So writing is a great thing. There are so many reasons why people do it. And I think that it's helpful to create a safe space for people to try things in their writing. Uh, writing is all about revision. Mm. Uh, oh, I, oh, will you say that again? <laughs> Writing is all about revision. I will work on uh, an essay, say, that I'm working on, like a creative nonfiction essay, and I'll be working on it for a couple years, off and on. And it just takes a long time to get the words right. And every time I return to the draft, I see new things that need to be fixed or can be added that I didn't see before. So if you're not willing to be a learner, Mm -hmm. to really have a big learning curve, uh, writing may not be for you. But if you can put up with revision after revision after revision, um, what you come out with at the end of that journey can be really amazing. Mm -hmm. So I think part of entering into being a writer, caring about writing is really caring about words and caring about stories and caring about uh, the kinds of things that you want to write about because words are powerful and they influence. But on the other hand, words can also be used to reveal or to conceal. Mm. So if you really want to be an honest, authentic writer in the world, uh, it begins with little steps, begins with getting some help, getting some feedback. It also begins with reading the kind of writing you would like to write and reading excellent writing. Uh, The best mentorship in writing is reading Mm -hmm. and reading well and reading deeply. So, um, and we do, it is helpful to have uh, a person who is farther down the writing road giving some feedback on what you and what you're writing. And in a retreat format, obviously, it's not graded, which of mm-hmm. course is a big difference. 
But even when I do grade, my students can revise. I really honor revision in my mm -hmm. classroom. Students can revise for a higher grade, and the original grade is gone at that point. Uh, and even though they don't have months and years to revise, mm -hmm. I try to give them as much space as I can for that. That's great. So what does your own process of writing look like? Maybe, no, I want to hear your story as a writer. You know, when have you always communicated <clears throat> through writing down words or and then it developed or what 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 is your story as a writer? I think I have always enjoyed creativity mm -hmm. and from a very young age I wanted to be a writer. I won a limerick contest mm -hmm. in the fifth grade and I remember when I was around 12 years old I had I asked my mother to write a check to Writer's Digest magazine so I could have a subscription mm -hmm. to that magazine. And honestly, at that age, the articles did not mean very much to me. Mm -hmm. But what I had when that magazine arrived was a peek through those glossy pages into the lives of people who knew how to do miraculous things with words. Mm. And it was very inspiring to me. I got a Writer's Digest mug, mm -hmm. and I kept all of my pens in it. Not <laughs> kidding. I, I was, you know, I was just like a stereotype of the writer wannabe. Mm -hmm. And at that time, too, and this will sound a little, you know, whatever, but The Waltons was my favorite TV show. Okay. And John Boy Walton wanted to be a writer and the shows often began or ended with him sitting at his little writing desk in his bedroom in front of the window with the voiceover of these profound little things that he was writing down. And I was mesmerized by this. Mm. So I always wanted to be a writer, really. And in college, I actually started out as a psychology major. Okay. And I ended up adding English as a second major toward the end because I was taking so much English. I thought, well, you know, I, I've checked. I can double major in it and, you know, it, it'll work out just fine. So I always planned to go into psychology. Mm -hmm. But after graduation, the more I thought about it, the more I thought I really am drawn to English. And I had an old English teacher at my college that I went and visited and he really encouraged me to think about getting a master's of fine arts in creative writing mm. because he knew that I really enjoyed creative writing. And after that, the rest was history. Well, and how, what did it look? Because that's interesting to have English and psychology because so much about writing is story. And oh, absolutely. To be able to write, you need to understand people. So mm -hmm. has that been helpful to have a psychology background when you're writing? I think it did. If The psychology major, if nothing else, showed a curiosity about people and how they're wired, how we function, what does it mean to live well uh, mentally. And, um, and I feel as though I use that limited but still potent in my history mm -hmm. psychology major all the time. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of what I do, I think, as a creative writing teacher is if I'm looking into, say, a personal essay, there's a psychology at work in a personal essay. And there are times I have to intuit with and for the writer, uh, where does this need to go? What needs to be explored? And a lot of times it has to do with things from a person's past, uh, relationships that have gone right or gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which I feel as if psychology and creative writing, especially when you're writing about very personal things, they go hand in hand for me. Mm -hmm. Who are some of your favorite writers that you read? Like who are the people that have mentored you in writing? Oh, so many. I'll just maybe name a handful. Christian mm -hmm. Wyman is uh, a writer that I'm very high on. Mm -hmm. Frederick Beekner is a writer I have loved for, for just a very long time, several decades. I also think Mary Carr does some great stuff with uh, her memoir, uh, Wendell Berry. Um, boy, there would be so many more. I'm starting to draw a blank. But those are some people that 
whose writing has really affected me mm-hmm. and in a sense mentored me. Annie Dillard should be mentioned. She's a she's probably the greatest stylist of writing. Her writing style is just so unique uh, of any living American writer that I know. So something you you were talking about her style of writing and I've thought a lot about a I've I'm in the midst of taking a preaching class mm-hmm. and we're talking about finding your voice, finding your voice as a preacher. Is it is there a same kind of process in writing to find your voice as a writer? Well, I'm not sure what the process would be for preachers per se, but it is a journey. So I'm sure mm-hmm. it's similar because when you're a young writer, you usually end up latching on to a writer whose whose style and content really speaks to you. And in a way, you write around in their back pocket, and mm-hmm. you might start to sort of write like them, to imitate them, not necessarily in the way of plagiarizing at all, mm-hmm. but just the feel of what they're doing and the kind of tone and maybe sentence styles and things like that you might be imitating. And that's all part, I think, of finding your own unique writing voice. Mm-hmm. So I think it just develops sort of naturally over time where you figure out what works for you and what doesn't, what sounds like you and what doesn't. It has a lot to do with, uh, has somewhat to do with subject matter, tone, syntax, uh, the kinds of sentences you're creating, uh, the kind of diction or word choices that you're using. And all of that sort of adds up to one style. And I do think it takes a long time. And as a younger writer, I, I thought about it a fair amount, especially in grad school, for my MFA work. And and then later I just thought you just you don't need to think about it. It's mm. just going to happen and and I think somehow it just does. My guess is with preaching it's probably similar. Mm-hmm. What you were saying reminded me of I there was a point where I was working for a salon and I was doing some writing ads, writing commercial ads for them and I was also reading a lot of Jane Austen at the time. And so when That's I funny. brought the radio ad in one of the people read it and they said, do people even talk like that? And I said, I'm sorry, I've been reading a lot of Jane Austen lately. And I think some of that leaked into the way that I was writing, the Mm -hmm. way that I was communicating. So yeah, I've seen that what you're saying about read people who inspire you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that will affect your, your writing. Yeah, definitely. So, and I think uh, our writing style, writing style can change over time. The writing style I had 20 years ago, my guess is it's probably at least slightly different than the kind of writing voice that I have now. So I think it's something that's very organic. It's very hard to pin down and it's changeable over time. But on the other hand, if you were to show me a piece of writing and not tell me who the author was and it was Frederick Buechner's writing, I I think there's a pretty good chance I could t- pick out that it was Frederick mm. Buechner. So if you do it long enough, I think uh, the voice can become very distinctive, even if it does change somewhat over time. Mm-hmm. Well, just like a person. You would mm-hmm. recognize a person even though they've changed and developed mm-hmm. over time. Absolutely. So, And you are a published author. I, I am well. a published author. But And that was not in creative writing. Or are you are you a published author? Uh, I have writing? a uh, I have a book. My first book was a book of poetry. Oh, I didn't. How many? So how many books have you published? Uh, just the two. Okay. And I've been published in anthologies and literary magazines and articles and things like that. But I just have the two books at at the present time. Okay. Yeah. So the second was a spiritual formation book, but the first book was a book of poetry. And my MFA's. My MFA thesis was in poetry. Okay. So in my early going, uh, I focused exclusively on poetry. So then for you as a writer, you went and got your MFA. Was that with the intention of going back to teach? I knew I could teach with the MFA. I think I did it because I wanted to become a better writer. Mm. And uh, But I knew I could teach with it, which did eventually happen. Uh, I don't know if I was sold on the idea. Yes, I know I want to teach, but I suspected mm-hmm. that it would be something that I would enjoy. So, but otherwise, a lot of people just get an MFA these days because they want an accelerated and very intentional season of working on their writing and developing their writing. So, then what did that look like after you got your MFA? 
how long was it before you became, before you started teaching? It was a few years. Uh, After I got my MFA, I moved back to Minnesota. I got my MFA at the University of Montana. So I moved back, was kind of establishing my life. It's very hard to get a first job when you're Mm -hmm. fresh out of a Uh, any master's program and you're looking for a job on the college level. So I actually worked for Hospitality House Mm -hmm. uh, Boys and Girls Club in Mm -hmm. North Minneapolis. Did a whole lot of things for them, uh, some of them writing related. Okay. And uh, just kind of was writing and pretty happy about just having a day job that I could leave at five o'clock more or less and working on my writing and my off time. And that's when, uh, it was during that season that I that I got the book deal okay. with New Rivers Press. And I, I had won the uh, Minnesota Voices Project. It was for first-time writers and in the kind of the five-state region. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, I became more attractive to uh, colleges. And, uh, and, and then I got a job uh, teaching at Northwestern part-time. I also worked at Bethel for a year part-time, which was okay. fun because I graduated from Bethel. So, uh, but once you, if you're a person who holds an MFA and you have some significant publications, it's really helpful for getting a job. And at that time, MFAs were not as popular as they are now, but they've been popping up like lemonade stands on street corners for <laughs> the past uh you know, 15 years. There's so many of them now. So, yeah. So what is your, because let me, as someone who attended one of your retreats and sat under your teaching of writing, I, I had such a positive experience. I was encouraged. I was challenged and, you know, I felt like I was pushed forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. Was that something that because you weren't necessarily intending to teach writing, was that something that was just naturally part of your personality, or is that something that you've had to develop? You know, what kind of shift had to happen from I'm a I'm a writer and now I'm a writer, and I don't think coaches goes far enough to what you do, but mm-hmm. to make that kind of it a is change. a little bit like coaching. I don't feel like I can, in a sense, in creative writing, I don't feel like I can make anyone into a creative writer. Mm. I think you can point, you can say what works and what doesn't. Um, You can encourage them to find mentor authors to read and learn from. So yeah, so there's a way in which I feel like, you know, all I can do is coach. Once they get out on the field, to use Mm -hmm. that metaphor, they kind of have to do it themselves. But you've prepared them for pathways of what to do and how to do it. So in that way, yeah, I think coaching is probably apt. Um, so, in t- and yeah, I don't know where the turning point came. I think that I started to look at, okay, I'm in my early 30s. You might want to think about having a career of some kind. <laughs> and I just thought, you know what? I had been in touch with uh, Northwestern at that point, because I had applied to them before I got the book, and Mm -hmm. they didn't have any openings. And then uh, there was some back and forth. They asked me to do something, like teach a class, and at that time I couldn't. So eventually I just applied. And uh, obviously it went well because Mm -hmm. I was hired. (laughs) 25 years later. Right. (laughs) But I was part-time in the beginning and made that work. Mm -hmm. So being a starving artist was, you know, nothing new. So I was able to do that and work on my writing. But it turned out to be a fit that um, I like interacting with people. I like Mm -hmm. interacting with college students. It's a really, really interesting time of life and Mm -hmm. age, I think, because there's just a lot of uh, change and growth in emerging adults, and they're trying to figure out themselves and God and the world. So it's a great time to intersect them. And while the workload can be heavy at times being a writing teacher, uh, which is just part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, the positives of it and helping students become better at writing, whether it's composition or an upper-level creative writing class, it just stuck. And uh, and I've, I've enjoyed it, and I think I've learned a lot about myself. Mm. And I think teaching writing has helped me become a better writer. Uh, it sort of sometimes it keeps me from writing and when I'm really busy, <laughs> but I think it's also helped me in my own writing life. 
uh, to be with young people talking about writing and authors and the writing process itself. I started there in the spring of 94. So you must have started in 93. Yes, I started in the fall of 93. Okay. So I had friends that mm-hmm. were English majors as I went through. And what I appreciated seeing is how you were creating spaces, not only in the classroom, but outside of the classroom for the students to to be developing and growing as writers. Mm-hmm. Whether it was the, what's the, what's the name of the, there's a magazine that you put out. Yeah, the uh, Inkstone Magazine, yes. our school literary magazine. Yes, mm-hmm. um, doing that or just the gathering of people and creating space for them to write was something that was that I saw was impactful for the people that I was students with mm-hmm. at the time. And then I saw that again at the retreat. And then now you're moving toward creating space for all different kinds of creative people. Will you talk a little bit about how this, what this new thing is, and then where that came from and where you're hoping for it to go. Sure. Um, A couple of years ago, I started to look at, especially in the beginning, young people. We have a lot of Christian young people coming out of the humanities programs in Christian colleges in the Twin City area. There's a lot of them. We have actually quite a lot of, uh, for our you know, for our area per capita, there's a lot of colleges in general, and there's a lot of uh, faith-based colleges as well. And I started to see that once a lot of these students who are writers and artists and theater people, et cetera, music people, once they're out of the uh, university college system, there often isn't anything for them after that. So I started to think, you know, they really should have something. And for a while, I did what I called the Emerging Artist Collective. And we only did it for a little over a year, but it was a real learning experience. Mm -hmm. And I also was thinking, you know, I feel like the Twin Cities could use more support for artists, especially those who are whether they're Christians or not, who are just Mm -hmm. interested in the faith art conversation, who are interested in how the arts and spirituality uh, complement and merge and reinforce each other. So um, I'm working with a, what I call a core community group on creating a faith-based arts nonprofit for the Twin Cities called the Cities Arts Collective. We're in the very early stages of this. We are hoping to start doing some things uh, in 2019. So that's been a journey, and I found some people who are excited about this prospect Mm -hmm. and creating a lot of different venues, uh, like showcases, book groups, reading faith and art things, Mm -hmm. uh, having practitioners do workshops in genres in which they are accomplished, and who knows what else, uh, having speakers and creating conversation, and just creating community. Mm -hmm. And there are some other organizations doing that, but I think there's room for the unique place that I would envision this nonprofit as having. So we're we're talking about it. We're praying about it. We are, there's a group working, and we'll see where it goes. We'll see uh, how God leads in this uh, venture. Well, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. It is really exciting. And I get excited about the idea of just putting my arms around all the artists I can. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes for artists in the church, there can be a disconnect where they don't feel what they do is necessarily valued Mm. and uh, or made to feel even as if it's a self-indulgent thing to be an artist and working on your little pictures, Mm -hmm. working on your little poems rather than seeing how beauty uh, and culture, how beauty is integral to culture, and uh, to use a phrase, how, how beauty can save the world. Mm-hmm. We were, I was driving with my younger son from a football game, and you could see downtown St. Paul, and you could see the St. Paul Cathedral mm-hmm. up on the hill. And I said, oh, look it, you can see the cathedral. And he said, have we ever been there? Have I ever been there? And I said, no, I don't think you've been there. And then I started to describe it to him and remember when 
the times that I've been in there. And it was a, I was talking about how big and grand and it's so beautiful. And then I told him, I don't know why I haven't taken you there. I need Mm -hmm. to take you there. But it's a worshipful experience to be in that space, to be in Mm -hmm. that building and to see the architecture and the, yeah, the beauty. I mean, exactly what you're saying, the beauty. Yeah, which is interesting when you think about how many of our churches now resemble tractor sheds. Right. And I think that the era of creating those vast, you know, monuments such as the cathedral, I don't think we're in that kind of era anymore where we should be spending millions and millions of dollars on on an art, on an edifice such as that, although I think it's great to have it now. Mm-hmm. But I think we can pay attention to our worship spaces in ways that uh, we're not paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, to, space matters. Environment matters. It, it does a work on us. And I think that art has art and beauty has something to say about that. So then why, what is the connection between beauty and worship and why does it matter? That's a really great question. There are what have been called the transcendentals of God. These are qualities of God that God has in such abundance that they become endowed in everything God creates. And the transcendentals, uh, they've kind of filtered down through the centuries and there's been different ones, but I would say the ones that are most stable and certainly the ones we talk about now are truth, goodness, and get ready for it, beauty. Mm. So beauty, truth, and goodness are the transcendentals of God. They are, in a way, maybe the fingerprints of God. Okay. And obviously in our worship, we want truth. Mm-hmm. We want goodness to be a part of our worship time. Mm-hmm. But we often forget, or perhaps have never thought about, beauty being an integral part of that. So I think that when we have a w- worship time that really seeks to honor beauty, truth, and goodness, that there is maybe a fullness of receptivity to God, a f- more of a fullness of experiencing qualities of God. And thus, beauty, I think, is integral to a fullness of our worship. I, I really identify with that in that when I see, when I'm in nature, when I'm standing on the North Shore in Minnesota, mm-hmm. looking out at Lake Superior, and it's awe-inspiring and it's big and it's beautiful that feels like worship to me Mm -hmm. more than for me that's just the way that I experience God more more than in maybe in a Sunday service right sometimes that is true and I think an awe-inspiring experience is spiritual by its very nature Mm -hmm. Uh, I think awe is a prayerfulness that is unaware of itself and I think even Non-believers can have deep moments of awe. And yeah, to be able to look out and experience the beauty that God has created in nature. Yeah, I think that most people are very intrinsically drawn to that. So then how do we do that? I mean, how do we how do we integrate beauty into our worship? And how do we and how do we encourage the creatives that are around us that we're doing church with to be a part Mm -hmm. of that? I think it helps if we look at our worship spaces and say, you know, what's happening with these worship spaces? Uh, What are we doing with with color and images and design? And to bring in the kinds of people who can speak into that, Mm -hmm. people who are used to creating spaces for people or bringing in artists. Um, Certainly there are a lot of churches that are bringing art into the church And, uh, for instance, having paintings or some other visual art. Mm -hmm. I've had uh, experiences in church where uh, during Advent, people are reading poems or Mm -hmm. talking Mm -hmm. about an art piece, and there are little galleries to view the art. There's dance, for instance, bringing dance into the church. Music, of course, is a very stable form of staple of worship Mm -hmm. but even trying to do different things with music rather than no offense the Mm -hmm. the three chord worship song Mm -hmm. and trying to give people a deeper experience or a different experience perhaps is a better way to say it of 
music as a vehicle of worship. Mm-hmm. So I think it has to be intentional. Um, I've been of the mind that I would always prefer to attend a church that has some sense of a theology of beauty. Mm. And I think that's the beginning. I think you have to appreciate that beauty is not beauty is not a synonym for pretty. Mm. That what is truly beautiful is also good and true. And the transcendentals really are a three-legged stool. You take out any one of them and the other two are compromised. Mm. If you take beauty out of the picture, goodness and truth are compromised, which is where I think things like, for instance, if somebody ever feels like they've been bashed over the head with someone's, by someone else's Bible, that probably was a time when truth was divorced from beauty and maybe goodness as well. So the three of them constellate together and really reinforce each other. So I think having a theology of beauty and understanding, hey, this might actually be true, and then to imaginatively brainstorm how can we welcome all of these qualities of God into our time of worship. I love that. We're getting a little off of the topic (laughs) of writing. It's fun, though. Yeah, this is so, it's such a good conversation. And I think important in what you said at the beginning about that writing starts with inspiration. And if mm-hmm. you're going to have inspiration, a lot of times that's going to come, well, it's going to come from God, from experiencing God in some mm-hmm. way, which then would lead to experiencing him through beauty, through good, his goodness, and through his truth. Right. Too. And I think that's one of the reasons I write is that there is an experience of God I get in being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it goes back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the first verb, the first thing we know about God is that whoever this God is, it's a God who creates. Mm -hmm. And we are made in his image. And I firmly believe that our sense of creativity is one way in which we are made in the image of God. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this and feeling like, and maybe even beyond writing, you know, there's some creative process that they have always felt inside of them, stirring inside of them. It's something they want to step toward you know, what would you, how, how would you suggest they do that? And if it's easier to just specifically talk about writing, we can do that. Cause I know mm-hmm. I'm casting a broad question. No, that's fine. I think if a person has a desire to write, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that artists need, and when I talked about the nonprofit I'm wanting to do, it's embedded. It's, you need community. Mm. You need to be with others who have a similar passion So finding other people who are interested in writing, for whom the writing journey is something that they really care about and they're willing to expend some energy towards that is really vital. I also think the reading is really vital. Mm -hmm. Finding good things to read, excellent things to read by people who are doing the kind of writing that you would like to do. So taking classes, certainly around the Twin Cities, there's places you can take classes in writing, such as The Loft which has been around for decades, and we're really lucky to have an, uh, a literary organization such as The Loft in the Twin Cities, and people who are doing writing workshops and things like that. So I think if a person is, if you just want to dabble, that's great. Some people mm-hmm. are just like journalers, and they just want to journal, maybe share it with a few people. But if you feel like you're wanting to take a step beyond that, you need to go find your community, your little tribe, mm-hmm. who can encourage you. Uh, we all need encouragement Really, I mean, no matter what we're doing, it's easier to do it when you find a group of people that are like-minded and you can encourage one another. Yep. And when my students graduate, one of the things that I encourage the writers to do, who are the ones who are a little more serious about it, Mm -hmm. is I'll say, look around at your graduating class or somebody who graduated last year whom you still might know and ask them if they'd be interested in forming a little writer's group. Mm-hmm. which uh, is free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you you know, and I know of a lot of my former students who get together with a group uh, once a month, maybe twice a month, and they share work and get feedback and talk about things they're reading. And it's really a great way to keep on the path of being a working artist in the world. Talk a little bit about the feedback. That's something that we didn't, we talked about revisions but we didn't talk about, is that something that you teach your students how to give good, constructive, critical feedback? Because I think, I feel like, 
that's something that I've asked for, you know, when I've spoken Mm -hmm. or done something and said, you know, what do you think? I'm looking for good, you know, feedback. And they'll be like, oh, it was great. Yeah. Thank you. But, Mm -hmm. you know, any, you know, critical feedback, like not not critical, but like constructive criticism. Yeah, critical can mean constructive or yeah, like going deeper, but it can yeah. also mean <laughs> just mm, critical. Critical. <laughs> yeah. um, well, when my students critique, I usually give them a list of questions to ask and wonder about uh, as they're reading the their peers' work. So there, I do try to shape how they do that because there mm-hmm. are things. Depending upon the genre, there are things I I want them to pay attention to. If it's fiction, I want to know about, like, is the dialogue realistic? How could the dialogue be improved? Is there too much dialogue, which often happens in beginning writing? And if it's a poem, there's other concerns, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I think beyond that, I have to help my students be brave in giving honest feedback. And I have to navigate how to give very honest feedback when uh, a lot of things are not working in a piece that I'm grading. Mm -hmm. And, you know, very, very lately, I've seen this thing from Brene Brown on uh, social media Mm -hmm. uh, connected to her new book on leadership. And she said, she said, uh, clear is kind Mm. and unclear is unkind. And it really struck me because... The kindest thing you can do, and I tell my students this, the kindest thing you can do is to be very honest with your peer about what you think needs to be changed, but to do so in the most tactful way you can, in the most loving way you can. And uh, and I, I just love that idea that unclear is unkind. Mm-hmm. So it is doing a service. Uh, it is serving your peer to be able to say, this part was vague. It didn't work for me. It feels very wordy. Can you maybe figure out, you know, what your point is and get to it more quickly? And to do so in love, I think, is what a really good critique group should be doing. Mm -hmm. Because it is too easy just to say what you liked and thought was good. But what we really need help with is what needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people, a lot of my students would rather just focus on what they liked because it's uncomfortable to try to tell someone what you thought was not working. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the writing journey is getting over that and being able to receive critique better and not have it be an indictment against your whole existence (laughs) and being able to give it in a way that is both tactful and constructive and said to say, this doesn't work, but what if you did it this way Mm -hmm. or could you say more about this? Mm-hmm. So it's, I think critique and peer critique is a dance and it can take a long time to learn how to do that. Just as it ta- is taking me a long time to learn how to talk about my students' work in a way that is very honest, but hopefully doesn't break their poor right. little spirits, <laughs> spirits and they right. never want to do it again. <laughs> no. And so Okay, before that, we were talking about someone who is beginning writing. So that would be one of the things. Find a collection of people mm-hmm. that you can do that peer group with. Right. Offer, find a way to offer good, constructive, honest, clear feedback. Mm-hmm. Are there other, other suggestions you would have for people who are looking toward stepping toward writing? I think that would probably be the, the big foundation. Mm-hmm. And then see what happens after you do that. A lot of people are very interested in publishing. Mm-hmm. And I do think, you know, you get to a point where maybe it's time to think about that. It dep- And the publishing journey can be different depending upon what it is you're trying to do. Some people want to jump directly to a book. Uh, but a lot of times you can write articles, you can write smaller things, mm-hmm. you can, uh, you could keep a blog. I, I think blogs are not as popular as they once were, but they're not dead either. In mm-hmm. fact, I even, I think I asked my students the other day, I was like, do you guys think blogs are dead? And they said, well, not to us. No. And so I do. writing students. Yes. <laughs> yes. They are writing students. Um, so I think it's, I think you can find your, Mm -hmm. find your niche, find your little audience and, 
and write for them and write for yourself mainly. Mm -hmm. But uh, share your work in the ways that you can and see what happens after that. But if, if you, you know, the whole publishing journey in the business of that is a whole other thing. But I think looking for ways to have your writing, have your words connect with other people and looking at what your options are around that is helpful. There are plenty of guides to help people find markets. Writers, I think it used to be Writer's Digest, it may still be, does the guide to markets every year. And you can usually find that in any public library on reserve. I know we have those books on reserve at Northwestern. And it's a way to find places to send your material who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, places that might be interested in, you know, publishing your work. So that often is the next step, which a lot of some people want to do and some people don't because it's it can be hard putting your stuff out there and having everybody reading it. That can be scary, too. And there's the Writers Conference at Northwestern. Too, Absolutely. Yeah. The Northwestern Writers Conference, I think, is great for uh, writers of varying stages of writing. Mm. Uh, some of them are just beginners, and they're just excited about a story they have to tell, sometimes a fiction story, sometimes a life story. But also people who are a little farther down the road come, and they're looking for new ways to think about their writing, to connect with agents and publishers, and to maybe take a workshop where they learn more about social media or writing style. I do, I've do. i done presentation on writing style and writing your own personal story and talk a lot about technique. So conferences, and the Northwestern one is a good one uh, here locally, are ways to also connect with people and to just deepen who you are and your own knowledge as a writer. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot we haven't talked about with writing. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about, about writing? I think one thing that I think is helpful is to be clear about what it is you're after in your writing. Mm. There are people who are very enamored of being published. And it, I think it's hard to get published in book form. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I think there's a robust book market out there, but it's smaller than it was. And especially in Christian publishing. Christian publishing went through a big bubble in the 2000s, and that has burst. So there are a lot of Christian publishing houses that are downsizing. I think there's a few here and there that are completely going out of business. So I think it's helpful to be aware of why am I doing this? What is drawing me to this? Because if it's not a love of words and sentences and stories and the power that stories have in the world, if it's not a love of those things, in fact, I just say that the the writing life is one big love affair. Mm. It's a place where my love for God, for language and words and stories, and my love for people all intersect. Because I write something and I love words and ideas and stories. And I'm wanting it to be a spiritual discipline for me and connecting with God through that. And then ultimately, I want to offer those words to the world because they were life-giving for me. And maybe they'll be life-giving for someone else too. Or maybe they'll feel less alone because Mm -hmm. of this story that happened to me. Or maybe some piece of beauty that might be in those words will be some entry point of hope for them, for instance. I think beauty and hope are very, very closely aligned. And so if it is a love affair, then I think that that is probably something you're called to do in the world. If it's more about, I really want to see my stuff in print, that's not terrible. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it doesn't happen, what will you do? Mm. And Or if it takes a long time, what will that mean for you? Mm-hmm. So I think it's helpful to get in touch with, why is it I want to do this? And if it has a lot to do with love, then I think God is all about that. And then that's a thing that you may want to pursue and, and then pay attention to God and what's happening as you do that to see if it's something you're really called to. What is that like when somebody connects with something you've written? 
I feel like I've found uh, like a a friend in the world, mm-hmm. like someone with whom I have a kinship and someone who is excited by the same kind of thing that I am. So it's a really gratifying experience when somebody says, yeah, you read this thing at this reading and I was really moved by it. And it draws me closer to them. And I, I think that one of the reasons we write and one of the reasons we read is to be less alone in the world, mm. to feel like uh, our story is not just our story. And of course, it's unique in its own contours and its own ways. But in a way, it's it could be someone else's story, even though the circumstances are different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I think that a community of readers is brought together with authors because we resonate with what's happening in the pieces. So I love it when someone resonates with something I write, If only, not because I like to be praised, but, you know, come on, who doesn't? <laughs> We're human. <laughs> but also because it's like, oh, someone else, a, someone else thinks the same way or had the mm-hmm. same kind of experience. And it's a great, it's a great feeling. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Roxanne Battle mm-hmm. a yes. couple of weeks ago, and I had gotten her book, and so I she was coming on and so I read it because Mm -hmm. she was coming on and she and then I had tabs where I had underlined something Mm -hmm. and it was so fun to watch her respond to the little tabs that I had and she said you read my book and I said of course I read your book you're Mm going to be a guest of course I read it and she said I love all the tabs that means that something that I wrote connected you connected with something that I wrote Mm -hmm. and I hadn't thought about you know for me it was I was just going through my process of what I was supposed to do and I never I hadn't considered that I hadn't considered what it was like for the writer when someone connects with your work Mm -hmm. yeah and this is you know I think in its purest it's totally beyond ego I think it Mm -hmm. really is that we want to move towards each other Mm -hmm. I think we're always even as divisive as things feel right now in our country, I think we're always in our best selves looking for ways to move towards each other, to find community wherever we can. And words and writing and story, especially story, mm-hmm. it's like a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. And beauty. Yes. Makes you move toward each other. Absolutely. Well. We are, one of the qualities of beauty is that we are, we are drawn to be near it. We're drawn to contemplate it. If you see a beautiful painting, you just want to stare at it. If you see a beautiful sunset, you just want to be with it. Mm-hmm. You want to just soak it in. Mm-hmm. And uh, so similar with uh, the beauty of words and stories, we're drawn to them and we want to share them. Mm-hmm. You know, we love we love what we're reading. And then out of that love, we want other people to experience it as well. That's why some people will find a book they love and then suddenly they're buying it for all their friends mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Or me, when I'm reading a book, I, oh, God, will that person come on the podcast and talk Mm -hmm. about their book? Yep, yep. So it it just naturally draws you together, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, maybe uh, books can uh, help us out of our current uh, crisis that we're (laughs) having in terms of being a little bit polarized. You never know. Mm -mm. That's a whole other subject. Oh, yes, it is. So the last time you were on, it was Christmas, and I don't think I asked you the questions that I ask all my guests. So we'll go ahead and do that. Since it's called Retreat House, how do you retreat? Is it a place? Is it a practice? What does that look like for you? I think retreating for me, well, it definitely looks like kind of hemming myself in, Mm -hmm. being alone, but not just alone, because you can be alone and not really dwelling in your life. You could just be on social media or or vegging in front of the TV. So for me, uh, I seek a contemplative aloneness. I do that sometimes by going up to uh, St. John's Abbey Guesthouse in Collegeville. Such a beautiful place. Yeah. So I will go on, I've gone on little writing retreats up there, but also personal retreats where I'm just seeking to just kind of waste time with God for a mm-hmm. few days. But at home, on, on a regular basis, I have a big stuffed chair that's near my sliding glass door. And I've got some meditation, you know, my Bible and some other Bible meditation books next to it. 
And I will just sit there and with my coffee and stare out the window a bit and read a bit, pray, just be quiet with God. I also sit in that chair for other things. I have other, you know, seating in the room. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it's a sacred spot for me in the morning when I'm able to have that intentional time with, with God. So for me, retreating always involves opening myself to the movements of God mm-hmm. and coming present to God and myself and my, my life, mm-hmm. which I think, uh, and it's reflective. And I don't think uh, any of us have enough reflective places, but those are some mm-hmm. of mine. Yeah, a place where we quiet. I heard Nina Barnes say it, that we stop our body long enough for our soul to catch up. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, so I feel like going away to do that is sometimes really helpful. Mm -hmm. It's helpful to get out of context and just, but I also think uh, we need those little sacred spots in our own homes as well. Mm -hmm. And those times when we can go there and open ourselves to our our whole self, where we've been, what's been happening, because as you said, we're always moving a little faster mm-hmm. than our souls, but also to intentionally invite God in and to just be with God mm-hmm. rather than always having to An feel, agenda. yeah, like oh, we have we to. we talked about last time. Yeah, <laughs> so other than always feeling like we have yeah. to do for God. And right. there's doing, right. but I think the best doing comes out of our being. Mm-hmm. We say that again. The best doing will always flow out of our being. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that has the most effect in the world. Yeah. The other question I ask all my guests is, if you were to use the hashtag celebrate weird to describe something about yourself, what would that be? Okay, now I'll have to think about that because the last time I told the story about my cat. so. Oh, oh I did ask you the questions you did. before. I think you did. I must have because, yeah. yes, I remember the you sing to your cats. No. I do, and I, I make up different lyrics to show tunes. <laughs> was that what you shared last time? And then I was on the phone with a mechanic. At, oh, right. <laughs> and then I thought I'd hung up, up. Yeah. And, and I started singing to the cat. So. <laughs> um, do you still want me to think of that? No. Another one? I mean, we just talked about it. I might not cut this part out. Okay. That's a good one. Do you have another one? <laughs> um. I, I actually was thinking about that on my way over. I thought, if she asked me that question again, what am I going to say? It's hard is there to t- anything else? It's hard great. to top the one about the cat, actually. <laughs> that is a good one. So. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back, Judy, and sharing about writing and your process and advice. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It was a lot of fun. So thanks again for having me. Thank you for joining us today at the table. Any information mentioned in the show or things we talked about can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Or if you've already subscribed, please leave a review so that others can find us too. If you want to keep up on what's happening with Retreat House, you can find us on all the social medias at at Retreat House Podcast. If you want to keep up with what's happening with me, you can find me at at Angie Smith. We'll see you next week at the Retreat House Podcast.